Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural, with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. (laughs) No, that is not the laugh from Infants on Thrones. This is Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today we're going to be, unfortunately, being honest and authentic to the data in spite of Elder Oaks teaching us that it is wrong to criticize a leader of the church even if the criticism is true. Because when you say that, take a step back. If you are an Orthodox believing Mormon, or you're just, maybe you're a progressive believing Mormon, take a step back. If you're in an institution where you are um, imposed upon you an unhealthy encouragement, and I don't mean encouragement like you just shouldn't do that, but whatever, like don't do it. If you, it is imposed upon you to not criticize the, the authorities within your institution. Ask yourself outside of Mormonism if that's a healthy mechanism. And then be willing to stand up and say, you know what? If it's not healthy anywhere else in the world, it damn well sure isn't healthy here. So today we're going to address... Uh, and Actually, I consider him a friend. Let me give you some backstory. We're going to talk today about Elder Holland. And I've been making this point over and over again in social media. I'm going to make it today on the podcast, and I've got a multitude of examples to show it. Um, In the middle of my faith crisis, I'm 32 years old. I'm serving as a bishop. And I, I wake up one morning, and for the first time I recognize, like, oh my goodness... I I thought I could figure out a way that this all fit together. It doesn't fit together. Wow, this is way messier than I thought it was. And I've been trying. I mean, I, I spend every week of my life up to that point and after reading, studying, diving into Mormonism, reading the scriptures, studying the words of the prophets, reading as much as I could. And so at 32 years old, I I wake up one morning and it's like, this doesn't fit anymore. And I don't know what to do. And I'm scared to death. If I tell anybody, what if I tell my stake president? I'm the bishop. What if I, what if I tell my counselors? What if I tell my wife? I can't tell anyone because I know that inside this group, I know what happens to people who express doubt. And I've heard horror stories of divorces and ends of relationships that happen. So what do I do? I don't know what to do. And, and my favorite apostle, 
the guy I look to and I'm like, that guy, he was, if anybody's going to understand, he's going to understand, he's going to have compassion. And so I reach out and I write a letter to Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. And he contacts Marlon K. Jensen and Marlon K. Jensen reaches out to me and talks to me by phone and by email. And then about six months later, maybe less than that, four months later, I get a phone call uh, on my cell phone at work from the secretary at Elder Holland's office and says, Elder Holland would like to talk to you. Do you have a moment? And I said, absolutely. And I went and found a quiet room and she patched me through to Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. And Elder Holland talked to me by phone and as well as email. I love Elder Holland. He's charismatic. He's jovial. He, he comes across as being understanding of the messiness. And some of his talks seem to want to make room for that. And, and he, I, I felt sincerely reached out and, and tried to comfort me in this, this rough patch. But what I didn't know then that I understand now is the pressure on these leaders to publicly be one person and privately another. And it is this incongruity that in some ways is at the heart of why Mormonism can't shift, can't move, can't change. And uh, uh, sometime later, Elder Holland came out to our region. There was a regional meeting of sorts. And my wife and I, we go. And Elder Holland gives a, a talk. He knew I was going to be there. I, I messaged him uh, by email that I was coming to that. And he said, make sure you come find me. And so when the thing was over, I walked to the front, me and my wife. And I walk up and I shake his hand and I say, Elder Holland, it's Bill Real. And Elder Holland leans over the, uh, the, the little wall in front of the stand and reaches over and grabs my ear and says the, the famous Bill Real, and he shakes my ear. It was this gesture of friendship, of love. And, and I appreciated it. I had hoped for a chance to talk. He said, come find me, we'll talk for a bit. And that didn't work out. That didn't happen. But moving along, I kept reaching out to Elder Holland. And as you understand from this process, my questions became... Um, more, how can I explain it? This Because this is important. I think when you go to the leaders and say like, I have really hard questions and I'll let you answer them how you want to. And even if your answer is unsatisfactory, I will just let it be. Because who am I to push you for a better answer? Who am I to uh, walk your answers logic out. And so as long as you talk to these leaders, specifically Elder Holland, as long as you talk to these leaders and say like, just tell me what you can tell me and I'll be happy with what you give, then they'll talk. And they're going to not be vulnerable. They'll give you a fluffy answer and move on. And your job is to accept that answer because the moment you say like, 
you know, Elder Holland or Elder Oaks, that answer's insufficient. And here's why. And I'd like to know the, the answers to these questions. And I realize, like, this puts you in a tough spot because if you answer these, you're going to reveal more than you want to. The moment you begin to get into that space, the conversations between me and Elder Holland became just one way. I would email him, I would message him, and I would get no responses back because I was no longer flatly accepting the responses he gave and I wanted to push back on his logic. I wasn't being mean. I wasn't being rude. But I did, my questions weren't easy questions. They were tough. And they were, they were asked with a stubbornness that I'm not going to play the game anymore. I'm going to ask the question and I'm going to walk your logic out and I'm going to ask the next question that your answer begs me to ask and I'm going to push and I'll do so friendly and I'll do so kindly, but I'm going to push. And at that point, the conversation ended from that point forward. I sent maybe four or five other messages, no responses. So I've essentially ended that other than I've sent and the podcast has sent with my backing uh, messages to um, more than one top leader, and Elder Holland was included in those conversations. So today, as much as I appreciate uh, Elder Holland's early relationship with me and his taking time to spend with me, even though I could sense he would not that our relationship was only of value to him as long as I would flatly accept what he was saying. And, and that's not a real relationship at all, right? As much as I appreciate that, today we're going to expose Elder Holland as somebody who's deeply dishonest on a regular basis. And, and I hope, I hope you'll sit with this. Like, I know as a believer, as an Orthodox member, you'll be like, ah, ah here's, the, here's the deal. If we're not willing to sit and listen to hard things, then we're really not a truth seeker. To be a truth seeker, we have to hear all sides. We have to take in the information, no matter how uncomfortable it is, and we have to make an informed decision based on that data. And so Elder Oaks, the idea that we can't criticize leaders, I'm sorry. If a leader is a deceiver on a regular basis, I think that needs addressed. And because that leader speaks publicly to lots and lots of people, I don't think a private conversation behind the scenes or a prayer to God to fix it resolves the problem. It is a public issue, and so it needs a public conversation. So with that, let's go to the first piece of audio. I hold in my hand that book, the very copy from which Hiram read, the same corner of the page turned down, still visible. Later, when actually incarcerated in the jail, Joseph the prophet turned to the guards who held him captive 
and bore a powerful testimony of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Shortly thereafter, pistol and ball would take the lives of these two testators. This was from the October 2009 General Conference. This is Elder Holland's talk, Safety for the Soul. This is where he, he tells us if, we're, if, if the critic is going to um, work through uh, the problems of the church, he's going to have to crawl through, under, around, over, between uh, the Book of Mormon, right? And it, I hope you sense here, Part of the dishonesty is when we don't tell the full story. It's not only when we tell a flat-out lie, which I'm going to challenge here that I think there's a flat-out lie here as well. But, but I also want to recognize like when we don't give people the full story, we also, intentionally, because the full story has an opposite effect of the story you're telling, then I think we're also being deceptive, and that is also lying and dishonest. Elder Holland says, I am holding the copy, the very copy of the book from which Hiram read, the corner of the page turned down. Now, let me propose the lie and then also the obfuscation. The lie is that the church has talked about this copy of the Book of Mormon. I believe it's in the hands of the church history department. Um, This copy you can see pictures of. This copy is worn and tattered. It has lost its color on the outside, very faded. You can see that it is not in the best of shape, although still in good shape, not in the best of shape. And the church has, again, shown multiple pictures of it. When you compare it to the book Elder Holland is holding up in conference, you will see that the book Elder Holland is holding is in mint condition. It is in gorgeous shape. One has to wonder if they didn't want him holding the other copy, the actual copy that the church claims is this copy. Now, apologists and others have come in and said, after critics said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, he's not holding the same book. The book he's holding in conference is in mint condition. And by the way, when you go into this episode on mormondiscussionpodcast.org, which is the master site with all of our hosts and all of their programs, or MD for Mormon Discussion, mdpodcast.org, which is only Mormon Discussions material. In this episode, in the notes, in the resources, you will see links to the pictures of both the one Elder Holland is holding, a picture of him holding it, as well as the worn and tattered copy that the church claims is this copy that Elder Holland holding the mint condition book up says, no, 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 this is the copy, the very copy of the book, the corner of the page still turned down from which Hiram read. So critics come out after this talk and said, wait a minute, we remember seeing in this church, uh, this, this article, perhaps I think Deseret News or, or somewhere else, where they talk about this copy, we've seen the pictures, it's not the same book. It's not the same book. And when that happened, the apologists and defenders of the faith and the church itself came out and said, oh, well, um, actually, actually, there are several copies, several copies of this book from which Hiram read. And in each of these books, he turns the corner of the page down and he gave a copy to all of these people after he read it. 
I've never heard that story before, and I would love to see the historical data for that because I've, I've learned in this church that way too often we create stories to explain problematic data, and the story has no source. The story has no reference. Thomas Marsh leaving over milk and strippings is a problematic story. We keep telling it, but the actual sources are really weak. In fact, there's one source. It's really weak, really, really weak. And so it's not fair to do it this way. So I will challenge if anybody wants to present me with the historical data that shows that Hiram Smith had multiple copies read from each of those copies in the same section, turned the corner of the page down in each of those, and then handed them out to various family members. Wonderful. The other issue is, even if that's true, Elder Holland, for emotional appeal, says he is holding the copy, the very copy. That wording imposes that there is one copy, and he has it. So there's another. That's the obfuscation. But again, look at the two books. They're different. He's not holding the very copy from which Hiram read. The corner of the page turned down. But perhaps, maybe maybe somebody after this episode will send me some information and say like, no, 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 Bill, I, I know we're claiming this, but here's the evidence. Here's the facts. We've got these sources, these journal entries. We know that multiple family members are getting a copy of the Book of Mormon. And while Bathsheba uh, didn't take very good care of hers, uh, you know, Jane Doe, took beautiful care of her copy, and Elder Holland just made an innocent mistake. Happy to hear it. The trouble here is there's a pattern. There's a pattern here. Here's the next one. Apolitical with regards to... We'll take, we'll, take a, we'll take a stand on moral issues, but we try to stay out of anything that's just traditionally political. Okay. So that actually sort of leads to my question, which is could you elaborate on the instances in which the church will take a political yeah. stand? What immediately comes to mind is the often cited sort of material impact the church had on the passage of Proposition Prop 8. Let's use that, let's use that example. And then also sort of how whatever that political involvement would be uh-huh. would be squared with the notion that, for instance, Americans' ability to have people exercise their beliefs sure. really yeah. actually led to the ability of the church to bloom in the way that Sure. Good point. First of all, let me work backwards. All we asked in Proposition 8 was the right to exercise our vote. We just asked for religious privilege to cast a vote. We did not want to be disenfranchised. Institutionally, not a single dollar, not one red cent of money from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint went into Proposition 8 or any other comparable proposition that I know of. Here, Elder Holland claims that the church has not spent a single dollar, not a single red cent. Now, again, there's a problem. And the problem is that, uh, and it's twofold. One is the way he's wording this and what he's trying to create. When you listen to the question and the answer, again, oftentimes we as Mormons, we have a group identity And we have an individual identity, and we often suppress our individual identity in order to take on the group identity, which we see as more important. It is more important to be loyal to the institution than it is to be authentic to oneself. We grasp that. I hope all of us grasp that. 
When we talk to people about the church, we word our answers in ways as to reflect as positively as possible on the church, even when we recognize that we're withholding the full scope of the of the issue from the person we're talking to, and we're often gauging that person's ignorance or naivete when we give the answer. When this person asks the question, did you guys give, did you guys, were you guys part of the funding behind Prop 8? Were you guys contributing funding to Prop 8? Elder Holland says, we didn't give one dollar, not one cent. Now this is twofold. One is that the church did give. It gave absolutely no ifs, ands, or buts. It gave what's called donations in kind, which means it gave items, it gave goods, that, and those goods have monetary value, and, and that contributes to the cause, but they, but they claim like we didn't give cash directly. The trouble is when somebody asks a question, what are they asking? The person's asking like, did the church directly have financial or donating involvement with Prop 8? And I got to believe as human beings, we're not ignorant, like we get it. And, but yet we also like, we want to frame things in a way that's faithful to the church. And so we look for loopholes in the way that we answer questions, if we're trying to be honest. So it could be argued, if the church only gave donations in kind, then by the letter of the law, Elder Holland's being honest. But in the spirit of the law, there's a deception here, which is Elder Holland's trying to paint to this questioner, we didn't give anything. That's, that's not the case. The other issue is that to, to say like all we want is the ability to, to have uh, those of us who hold this religious standing to have a vote. That's not true. The church had deep involvement in Prop 8. It claimed that it was just members of the church working on their own. The reality is that Ryan McKnight and Mormon Leaks have exposed documents that show that the church had a behind-the-scenes organization led by LDS apostles that were um, leading the charge on this issue. Like, like it was Elder Ballard and other general authorities who were behind the scenes at the top of this leadership pyramid of who and what was being done with Prop 8. To say the church wasn't involved, excuse my language, but that was bullshit. And the church didn't want anybody to know that it was involved, but we now know that it was. Now, when it comes to the funding, the church, the day before the deadline, files the appropriate paperwork uh, showing itself as a major donor for Prop 8. On January 30th of 2009, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints filed a major donor report with the California Secretary of State listing $189,000 in non monetary expenditures on behalf of protectmarriage.com, the yes on Prop 8. The Mormon church admitted directly spending a huge sum of money as part of its monumental effort to end same-sex marriage in California. The church waited until 5 p.m. on Friday, one business day ahead of the required filing date of February 2nd, 
to turn in its first report detailing at least some of its involvement in the Prop 8 campaign. You see, it's deceptive. When you give almost 200 grand to a cause, no matter what form that is given, when somebody asks if you're directly, and, and by the way, you also have a secretive, behind the scenes, unknown publicly, a uh, leadership chain that goes all the way to the top of your church. And then you claim publicly that one, you're not directly involved at all in terms of the feet on the ground. And two, that you um, have not given one red cent to the cause. You're being dishonest. You're being deceptive. So Elder Holland here is caught again, not telling the truth. But you know what? Maybe there's a loophole there too. So let's get into the third example. Elder Holland uh, recently was in the Deseret News for telling a story about a missionary. This missionary got sent um, off on his mission. And while he's on his mission, he happens to just run into his brother. And he doesn't know it's his brother, but the spirit is leading him to this house and leading him in how he interacts. And by the end of the story, this brother comes back to the church. And it's a it's a fascinating story, a story which lots of people went out into their wards and into their community and shared it as a faith-promoting story. Once it hit the Deseret News, people began to talk about this story when people who were more critical thinking, and trust me when I say this, when you read this story, and again, I'll leave uh, the links up that you can go find this story if you want to. If if you read this story, it's absurd. Like there are so many implausible, miraculous things happening that your bullshit meter begins to go. And so behind the scenes, I'm having conversations with Radio Free Mormon and him and I are talking and we're like, hey, this story just came out. This story is not true. This story is absolutely a far-fetched tale. And for these 10 reasons, like the chance of a story having all 10 of these is ridiculous. Peter, James, and John would be shaking their head in disbelief. This story is whack, crazy, cray-cray. And so as we're talking, we begin to notice that in the progressive and ex-Mormon community, other people begin to see the same thing, like this story isn't making sense. And I'm having conversations with Ryan McKnight. McKnight is, and him him and I are approaching each other and going, this story doesn't make any, this is not a true story. So word begins to get out that people are having serious doubts over the story. So what happens? Elder Holland goes public through Deseret News and Church PR and says, Elder Holland is pulling this story back a member of the family has come to him and informed him that he received a less than forthright telling of the story. And Elder Holland, out of his integrity, bless his heart, is pulling the story back. Now, you can go back into Radio Free Mormon's episode he did on this. Episode 16, Make Way for Dodos. Now remember, Elder Holland went to a pretty good school. He's read some good books. He's no dodo. 
when you go back and listen to Elder or, uh, Radio Free Mormon's episode, and when you dig into the data, and some of that data is still available in the resource notes, I believe, for that episode. When you dig into the data, what you learn is this. Elder Holland and other general authorities had been privately at missionary meetings, been telling this story for three years. Three years. That's as far back as we can find it. Maybe it even goes further back. But for three years, these men were telling this story as a faith-promoting story. Elder Holland claims he knows this family directly, but the story didn't start with him. He picked it up from other general authorities, not members of the 12. This was members of the 70. We can first show that members of the 70 told the story first, and Elder Holland picked it up later as a faith-promoting story. Elder Holland claims that he talked to this family directly. There are so many holes in his story, and there are so many holes for his explanation of pulling it back. That again, my bullshit meter goes. Elder Holland, knowing the facts of this story, I'd love to sit down with you and figure out who this family is, and I'd love to talk to them. I'd love to talk to this family that exists. If if they could come forward and substantiate your story, and you could explain how you told this story for three years, and only when the story went public in the Deseret News and critics. And by critics, I mean those who were critically thinking of your story said, this is absurd. This thing is not true. Do you say like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to say it myself, but please, Deseret News, Church PR, make this thing disappear. Again, dishonest. Now for this next one, see, here's the thing. Those three, yeah, maybe, right? Like, Like there are loopholes. If we give Elder Holland the greatest benefit of the doubt, we say like, there's there's a little tiny bit of wiggle room. On these next two, there's not. They're clear and blatant lies. Here's the audio. As a Mormon in the temple, I've been told, he would have sworn an oath to say that he would not pass on what happens in the temple lest he slit his throat. Is that true? That's not true. That's not true. We do not have penalties in the temple. You used to? We used to. Therefore, he swore an oath saying, I will not tell anyone about the secrets here, lest I slit my throat. Well, the, the, the vow that was made was regarding the ordinance, the ordinance of the temple. It sounds Masonic, sir. It sounds Masonic. Well, it's comparable. It's similar to, to, to a, a Masonic uh, relationship. The most, potentially, I mean, the most powerful man the, on the world the has sworn an oath, which he meant at the time, whatever it is now, that he must not tell anyone about what he's seen, lest he slit his throat. That he would not tell anyone about his personal pledge to the Lord. I know as a believing Orthodox Latter-day Saint, that soundbite is going to make you deeply uncomfortable. You're going to sense, like, we don't want to talk about the temple. We've made promises not to. But can you feel Elder Holland's trepidation? Can you feel his need, rather than being authentic and honest, his need to protect the institution that he has promised and tries to live up to and being loyal to? He is asked point blank, 
did Mitt Romney ever make a uh, oath that involved penalties where one is demonstrating harm on themselves? And in 1991, 1992, when the temple ordinances change, prior to that moment, those are there. Elder Holland knows it. He went to the temple when those were there. He, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. In Elder Holland's brain, he absolutely understands that what was in the temple prior to the change, and he knows absolutely that Mitt Romney took that oath. But rather than be honest, he lies point blank. Listen to him stutter and stammer. I'll play it one more time. Listen to his discomfort. Listen to his trepidation. Listen to his shaky voice. Listen to him try to dismiss and deflect hoping that the interviewer is ignorant and naive to the answers he's given not being forthright. Here it is again. As a Mormon in the temple, I've been told, he would have sworn an oath to say that he would not pass on what happens in the temple lest he slit his throat. Is that true? That's not true. That's not true. We do not have penalties in the temple. You used to? We used to. Therefore, he swore an oath saying, I will not tell anyone about the secrets here, lest I slit my throat. Well, the, the, the vow that was made was regarding the ordinance, the ordinance of the temple. It sounds Masonic, sir. It sounds Masonic. Well, it's comparable. It's similar to, to, to a, a Masonic uh, relationship. The most, potentially, the most powerful man on the world the has sworn an oath, which he meant at the time, whatever it is now, that he must not tell anyone about what he's seen, lest he slit his throat. That he would not tell anyone about his personal pledge to the Lord. So the question is, is it okay to lie for the Lord? Is it okay to be dishonest? Is it okay to, to tell a lie in situations like this? I get when you're protecting somebody's life, but to protect an institution simply does not sit well with me. And I ask you, does it sit well with you? So there's the fourth example, but that's just the fourth one. Here comes Example number five, which I find, see, Elder Holland has been called out on these everywhere along the way. And what Elder Holland does, and I don't have these in, uh, in time order. These are, not, these are not in order from the earliest they happen to the latest. But you would think after being called out for dishonesty, that you would go like, oh my goodness, the internet and media and, and those who are upset with the church that are leaving in great numbers, feeling betrayed, they're just not going to let me get away with this anymore. And you would think like we would stop being dishonest, even if just for the reason of not getting caught and looking silly. But Elder Holland, no, no, he stays at it. Here's the audio from the fifth and final example. We're in the midst of, of incredible growth, staggering growth in the church. It's the single biggest problem we have. It's the best problem we could have, but it's the biggest uh, we, we are reeling under the implications of the growth that we have in this church. Last Thursday, I've been out here this Thursday, I've been with Elder and Sister Holland and been with Elder and Sister Robbins this, this week, so we, I missed the temple meeting this Thursday, but a week ago Thursday we created 15 stakes, um, and we're doing that 
Masamenos every every week, more more or less. Uh, it might not be 15, but it's uh, the week before it was 12. Uh, sometimes it's eight or whatever, and it'll be a little uneven. But 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 the point is, I mean, we're we're talking double-digit stakes every week, every week of our lives, and uh, so be it. We're creating new missions. We created some new ones that'll be in place this summer. Uh, you're going to create some new stakes in the Southwest. You're doing it already. Well, you've already done it. How, how, we've been splitting stakes around here like crazy. Uh, and, uh, and, and we'll be doing that. M missionaries, temples, everything. Everything we're doing is bigger than it's ever been done in the history of the world. I'm not just talking about since October. I'm not just talking about since 1940. Since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. This is the last example. Elder Holland claims that we are having double-digit state creation every week of our lives. Listen to it. Rewind the thing 45 seconds. Play it again. Listen to how much. It's not like he just makes one slip of a word and maybe he meant month instead of week. No, he is saying it over and over. He is imposing to the people he is talking to that in his Thursday meetings in the temple... The church leadership is approving week after week after week after week after week. Every week of our lives, double-digit stake creation. The trouble is the church actually gives us the data. Every general conference, the church announces the number of wards and stakes that have been created what it does is it tells you the total number of stakes. All you have to do is minus the number of stakes from the previous year, and you now have the number of new stakes. So if we went to that data, which we have, and we take, this talk was given in 2015, by the way, if we take all of 2015, 2016, 2017, and thus far in 2018, we end up with 1.6 stakes created per week 1.6 why isn't he honest why doesn't he tell the truth somebody said to me they're counting both the number before and after the decimal bullshit when you tell a crowd you have double digit state creation you don't mean 1.6 you mean 10 or more elder holland you have a pattern of dishonesty. You have a pattern of deception. You have a pattern of lying. And now, once I've dug into all the history and I realize the messiness, and I realize what it would take to fill the one void this church has, which is vulnerability and authenticity, I realize that dishonesty comes in really handy. So to you, Elder Oaks... It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. I am absolutely done playing your guys' game. Game over. Such things as not criticizing leaders of the church and not being able to call out unhealthiness feels like mind control. To those who are listening, take back your own authority and do not tolerate the deception and dishonesty that this church gives in order to shield itself from vulnerability, authenticity, 
which leads to acknowledging the messiness of this church and becoming something that is good rather than the unhealthy, high-demand religion that Mormonism is. May the Lord warm each of your shoulders as you begin to take back your own authority. Till next time. And in radio-free Mormon fashion, here's a little classic from the son of Bob Marley. I think it'll be quite touching considering what we just talked about.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 